Thank you, Lord. We love you. We thank you for your word. And so, Lord, we come before your word and ask you to speak to us with clarity by your spirit, by the Holy Spirit. Release the spirit of wisdom and revelation this morning and draw us into a greater revelation of the knowledge of God. And oh, how we desire to know you. Lord, I pray, speak truth. Untie the knots of misconceptions that have bound our minds. Speak truth and light. Come, Holy Spirit, I pray, stand with me. Hold my hand. Let me speak as an oracle this morning. In Jesus' name. Good, amen. Okay, uh, find with me in your Bible, Hosea chapter 2. And we're going to uh, start a new series called The Glory of Marriage. And uh, I'll just tell you how I, how I came to, to uh, want to speak on this topic. I, for a long time, I've kind of neglected it and stayed away from uh, talking about marriage and, and family uh, I think primarily as a reaction, I'm just going to share with you my own testimony, a reaction uh, from my own heart, from my own soul. Because for uh, years and years and years of my Christianity, uh, 10 plus years, uh, I would spend weeks um, listening and studying uh, marriage concepts and um, mostly how-tos on marriage, how to have a stronger, better marriage. And it wasn't until uh, 2000, I think about 2004, when after I'd taken a long season and studied Song of Solomon, the, the book, uh, that is really the, the key book um, of, of uh, passionate marital love in the scripture. But it's an allegory. It speaks to us of Jesus' revelation and, and of his love for us. But it wasn't until I studied uh, Song of Solomon, that something shifted and unlocked in my heart as it related to uh, my uh, relationship with my wife. And it was then that I realized that uh, everything in life, um, everything that I put my hand to do in life, the key to whatever it is, whether it's marriage, family, uh, job, ministry, whatever, the way I manage my finances, all of it must come through a lens of the knowledge of God. I've got to know who is God uh, as it relates to my marriage or who is God as it relates to my children in order to uh, rightly apply myself in those, in those relationships. And when I began to get the revelation of Jesus' intimate and des- uh, desirous love for his bride, that shifted something in my heart. And so what I, what I realized was the key to having a good marriage is knowing Jesus, <laughs> Just like the key to everything is knowing Jesus. But I felt like the Lord began to speak to me probably um, two months ago and just kind of gently correct me a little bit. And And he began to speak to me about the issue of proclaiming the knowledge of God through uh, marriage and through family relationships. And one of the key things he spoke to my heart was just that, you know, we have two prime, natural relationships that come from the family, and both of those relationships, every one of us has them, um, at one level or another, uh, those two relationships, they speak to us dramatically of the knowledge of God, and those two relationships are the husband and the wife, and the parents and the child. And so we understand the father heart from, you know, our, our, at a certain level, from our connection uh, with our fathers and, and really our mothers at a certain level. But then we also see in marriage the, the bridegroom and bride relationship. And the Lord gives us that relationship to speak of himself. And so here I am, one that really wants to... Um, proclaim the knowledge of God and proclaim Christ above everything else, neglecting to teach on the key, probably the key uh, natural uh, picture that we have of the knowledge of God uh, in our lives, which is the husband and wife relationship, marriage. Uh, 
And so the Lord just gently corrected my heart. He said, you can't neglect teaching on that if you're trying to teach the knowledge of God. It's one of the key ways that I speak to humanity about who I am through husbands and wives and the relationship that they have with one another. Now, that doesn't mean that every husband and wife relationship is a pure picture of Christ in the church. Amen. (laughs) Uh, Of course, we know that. But what it does mean is that the Lord set up marriage, the whole concept of marriage, as a continuous proclamation of himself. And therein is, that's sort of the title of the series that I'm going to go into. The glory of marriage is this. Here it is. The glory of marriage is this. That all day, every day, we see couples that have said yes to one another. They've made vows of commitment and covenant to one another. All day, every day, that speaks to the planet. It speaks to the church, to the lost That idea of covenant commitment between a man and a woman who said yes to one another and and no to everyone else, that is a picture of Jesus and the church. And that's the glory of marriage that, uh, you know, in marriage, we are living out, we are a living example of the proclamation of the knowledge of God, the way our God is. He's a bridegroom God. And that, beloved, is a revelation that's amazing to me, but it's foreign to the language of the church in, in, in many ways, t- totally absent, but pretty foreign. It's getting more steam now, but he is a bridegroom God and he gives us the institute, institution of marriage to declare that to the earth all day, every day. You and I, we see couples and through that picture, the Lord is saying, that's who I am. I am a jealous bridegroom who's in love with my bride, who's passionate for her, and I am desirous for the world to know me as such. So desirous that he gives us this institution of marriage. That's a huge point that God would set up the way that things go. He sets it up in Genesis. In Genesis, when he creates Adam and Eve and he pulls the woman from his side, Adam had just got finished naming all the animals. Names all the animals, and he's, he's feeling the itch on the inside. He goes, wait a minute. There's not one of these that works for me. And the Lord puts him to sleep. We know the story. Pulls the rib from his side and creates woman out of man. And he says, now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now this is one that's, that's, that can work for me. This is one that I can have a relationship with. And then the Lord, through Moses, gives commentary, because Moses, the writer of Genesis, gives commentary in the next verse. He says, because of this, or for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul, by Holy Spirit revelation, tells us in Ephesians 5, and the point of that is to declare Jesus' desire for the church. So, beloved, the Lord sets this thing up, this institution of marriage. He sets it up early to declare the glory of himself to to all of us, to the planet. And so I, uh, the Lord corrected me a little bit and just on my mentality on that. I, I just, I've become one that I really feel like the whys of of how we live, the, the why we do uh, our lives in a certain way are so much more important than the what's. What I mean is, I'd way rather give you the foundational truths that motivate the heart and, and, and compel the heart and, and, and the whys of why we live for Christ rather than just the lists of what to do. But so many of us, we want, we want it fast, we want it quick. Give me the five steps, give me the one, two, three, four, five what's, and we neglect the whys. And I tell you what, if you do a lot of what's without having the whys landed, the what's will get old and boring. You'll quit doing the what's. They can tell you what is right all day long, but if you don't have the, the richness of the, of the wise, that this, is, this causes you to know God, this causes you to come alive in God, you won't do the what's very long. You'll know the what's are the quote-unquote right thing to do, but you won't have the, the, the whys in there to anchor your heart to it. And so that's, that's been one of my main flows is to call us to revelation, the why of life. Why? Why be abandoned to God? Well, he's a lover. Why? Why? Why, uh, you know, work on our marriage? Because it's a declaration of the glory of God. 
And so I want to kind of set the table this morning. I, I'm probably going to go six or eight weeks on the glory of marriage. I, I, the more I looked, I, I thought, man, I, got, I, got, I think I got three messages up my sleeve. And then I studied it a little bit more. I'm like, well, I think about five. Well, let's turn it into seven. Eight's a good number for a series. Okay, let's just keep it at eight, you know. So I think we'll, we'll spend a couple months on the glory of marriage, the declaration of who is God through this covenant commitment, this relationship that he's given us. And I, I, my prayer is that it's a fresh look for us uh, as to the marriage relationship, that it's, a, it's something where we don't, I mean, I, hopefully I'll give you some practice, practical things, but um, hopefully what we'll do is we'll be drawn near to God. We'll be drawn near to God as we consider the, the joys and the sufferings, you know, the trials and the blessings of the marital relationship. We'll be, joined, we'll be drawn to God and increase in a greater knowledge of Him. This relationship of marriage, it, it declares to us the beauty and the worth of Jesus who's dramatically in love with His bride. And that's the, and what an opportunity you and I have to daily live out, married couples and singles alike, to daily live out. You know, if you're single, you're not married yet, but this is the point. You get the picture of why marriage instead of what marriage. You get the picture of the why of it first. But we get to daily live out this expression of God in our lives because he's trying to declare to us the beauty of who he is through marriage. He's trying to declare to us the beauty of Christ, the sufferings of Christ through marriage. Amen. I'm telling you, there is a massive amount of fantasy regarding this issue of marriage. I hope I'm in, in my heart right now, I've got a giant pin and I want to burst that bubble. I want to burst the fantasy island mentality of marriage because uh, I didn't hear it. Hallelujah. Amen. Because there's a lot of goofiness. And the way that we think about marriage. So my heart is to draw us near to God, get us a greater revelation of the knowledge of God. And ultimately, if we do that, our marriages will benefit. They will benefit. But I, I don't know that I'm necessarily um, trying to get us steps to have better marriages. I don't, I don't necessarily know that God wants your marriage to be easier. I'm not sure that that's even the point of marriage. So, I want to recommend two books. I really want to encourage you to... I, you know, it would be a bummer to me if um, I just showed up and heard a message on Sunday morning as part of my weekly entertainment and I didn't actually track with it over time. I want to encourage you. Don't let Sunday mornings or Sunday afternoon evenings be like part of your weekly entertainment. I got a little good message and you just go about your business. Lock in with me. For eight weeks, let's go. Let's go into this and let's get into this study for eight weeks. That's what I'm hoping to do is that we all go together in a study. So I'm going to give you two books. I want to encourage you to read, read these books. They're different. The first one is The Mystery of Marriage by Mike Mason. I'll just give you a little background on Mike Mason. He was, he was going to be a, a, a celibate. Didn't, he, he, he figured that would be the best way to glorify God, to be a celibate his whole life. And lo and behold, he fell in love and got married and uh, wakes up the next morning and feels like he's missed God, but knows that he's ended, entered into a lifelong covenant with this woman. And so then he, he walks through the process of having to deal with uh, the concept of what does it mean to, to be uh, in a marriage relationship, the mystery of marriage. It's, he, I love it. He's, a, he's like a contemplative, uh, which is just, uh, you know, he, he just considers the knowledge of God and he comes at marriage from that. And then Gary Thomas, Sacred Marriage. That's the other one. We have, we're, we have Sacred Marriage in our bookstore. We'll have the, the Mystery of Marriage, Mike Mason. We'll have that in our bookstore here shortly. But Gary Thomas is the one, I think, who coined the phrase, what if marriage isn't, the purpose of marriage isn't to make you happy, it's to make you holy. And I'm just gleaning from Gary Thomas. I just appreciate his stance. 
So Sacred Marriage, Gary Thomas, Mystery of Marriage, Mike Mason. I want to encourage you to get those books. All right. This week, the Pew Research Center, it's one of the main you know, research authorities that are out there, published a, uh, a poll that they've just done in USA Today, and 42% of Americans age 18 to 49 are now declaring that marriage is obsolete. 42% age 18 to 49, now just get your mind around this, think that marriage is obsolete. That's really, really an intense thought. And uh, the, the higher percentage was in the, the younger uh, group category, like 18 to 30. And uh, I want to declare this, that marriage, uh, regardless of what these people in this poll think, Marriage will never be obsolete. Marriage will never be obsolete. Now, here's the thing. In the next age, Jesus tells us that we will not be given in marriage. In other words, those in glorified bodies won't be given in marriage in the resurrection. Uh, those in natural bodies will still stay married but, and, and do marriage. But those in resurrected bodies won't be given in marriage. He says they'll be like the angels and abide eternally. But here's the point. The reason why they're not, and you and I won't be having uh, marriages with, with one another is because we will be eternally married to Jesus. And he says that in Hosea 2. And that's the verse I wanted you to look at first. Hosea 2, the Lord declares his intentions as a bridegroom God. And he makes it real clear. How long this is going to last. Isaiah 2 verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. Everybody say forever. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice. In loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. So God sets up marriage as an eternal reality. That he is going to share with us. Now, it's kind of weird for me to think that uh, my wife and I won't be married in the resurrection, but I don't think we've got a real picture of where this thing is going. We will share love with one another uh, in, a, in a perfected way, but ultimately, eternally, beloved, we're going to be married and in a very specific sense, even a more acute way than we can even define. But we're going to be betrothed to the Lord forever. We're going to be married forever. So I can say with real boldness to the 42%, they're wrong. <laughs> Marriage will never be obsolete. And I was thinking about that poll. I thought, well, what about the married people? There, there had been a bunch of married people that Sat there and, you know, they got married. They looked at their spouse. They looked at this poll and went, oh, yeah, it's obsolete. And I thought, man, if you knew that your spouse said your marriage was obsolete, that'd be a bad place. But I think that's where we are because we don't have a picture of God in marriage anymore. We don't have the clarity of who God is as he proclaims himself through marriage. And so that's my endeavor is that we would... We would see who God is through marriage. I want you to flip over to 1 Timothy. I'm just going to lay some groundwork today. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Gives us an interesting word on marriage. Something that we don't really have that much light on yet. But I think we will in days ahead. But that, that spirit that's, that people are embracing, that are saying marriage is obsolete, I'm going to tell you in a minute, beloved, that is going to become not just uh, normal, it's actually going to become energizing for the earth. Now look at Paul's language here. This is amazing to me. Look at Paul's language in 1 Timothy. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now the spirit... The Holy Spirit expressly says, specifically says this, that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. There's going to be an apostasy. And why? Because they're going to give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. 
They're going to be speaking lies and hypocrisy, having uh, their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Their own conscience. See, the conscience of man declares things to man. And when you continue to, to violate your conscience and you continue to, to jump over the hurdle where your conscience says, don't do that, but you continue to jump over it, you sear your conscience so you don't have that internal witness of, of righteousness and, and wickedness. He goes, this is what's going to happen. We're gonna, he goes, at the end of the age, we're going to see people who will have bought into the lies of the enemy to such an extent that their, their own consciences will be worthless. They'll be, they'll be seared. You know, when you've, when you've burnt your, your hand or something, that the skin gets tough. You don't feel anymore. Because they're going to be unfeeling. They're going to be seared in their consciences. What's the first thing that he says in verse 3? That these that at the end of the age, that are seared in their consciences, that have given into deceiving lies... Of the, of the devil. What's the first thing he says about them? They're going to forbid marriage. What is that? I, I looked at it and went, hold on. You mean it's not going to be murder? It's not going to be, it's going to be forbidding marriage. What's that about? And I'll tell you what it's about. It's about the Antichrist spirit desiring to erase the declarations of the knowledge of God and to pervert the knowledge of God So much so that at the end of the age, there's a time coming, beloved. The Spirit expressly says it. So much so that at the end of the age, marriage is going to be forbidden. Why? Because the enemy wants to totally erase the pictures of the knowledge of God that society sees all day long. And replace them with completely false doctrines of demons. Things like unions and, and you know, homosexual, uh, you know, they're not even marriages, but whatever those are, homosexual unions. He wants to replace the knowledge of God with perversion so when men's hearts are seared, they can't even look and see a picture of Jesus the bridegroom longing for the bride in, in humanity. He's going to get rid of those stations. He's going to get rid of the husband and wife. He's going to, I guarantee, when we forbid marriage, we're going to get rid of the concept of uh, father-mother. And you see that in, in the earth today in, in certain ways. I'll just say this. I, I read an article by a, a leading feminist. And, and actually, I read it by, it was an author by her, her daughter. How she was saying feminism ruined her life. And uh, this woman had, uh, because of feminism, had decided that she didn't want to have a mother-daughter relationship. And they were just going to be sisters. And this girl was 39 or 40 and she had just had a baby and her mother disowned her for having a baby. Leading national feminist. And, uh, and what, is, what is that? What is that about? That's the Antichrist spirit, beloved, trying to erase the declarations of the knowledge of God in all the pictures that he's given us. Even to this extent, beloved, there's a day coming where marriage will be forbidden. The Spirit expressly says it. So that tells me, and it just, I mean, it it causes a tremble to come in me, that, man, this issue of marriage is more than just, hey, I kind of like you, you kind of like me, let's get hitched. This thing is significant, it's critical, and our attention to our marriages is critical, and the key reason is it's a proclamation of the glory of God. We're all day long declaring something about God through our marriage. Now, it's up to you to fill in the blank what you're declaring. Come on. You know what I'm saying? The church is right now declaring something about God through our marriages. And and here's the thing. With the divorce rates as high in the church as they are in the world, we're declaring something about God through that. Beloved, We've got to get a different picture of marriage than we've had. Because I don't believe marriage is mostly about what makes you happy. It's mostly about who is God. Now, do you get to be happy in marriage? Absolutely. Marriage is a lot of fun. It can be awesome. It can be hell. But it can be awesome. It can be so, I mean, full of bliss and And pleasure, 
Why? Because God wants us, he wants to declare that to us. But it can be a battle zone. And that's the reality of it. And I tell you, it's just like Jesus. Before there's resurrection power, there has to be death. And marriage is that, it's the key context to kill you. It's a crucible. Marriage is a crucible. It's a furnace. Marriage is a furnace. You just pick somebody that you've not known your whole life, and you're going you're gonna to live in the same bed. I mean, it's not even like we're in the same house, roommate. We're going to actually get as close as we can get. We're going to be in the same bed every day. That's gonna, that will expose you. It's meant to. It's meant to. So, the issue of marriage is absolutely critical. I've had a massive, I, I, it's not that I didn't think marriage was important. I love my wife, love my family, love our marriage. Have paid a lot of attention to it. I didn't get it. I just didn't get how critical of a, a, a proclamation of the glory and, and the nature of God that it is. That's the key issue here, beloved. I, I would, in fact, I've done, I don't know how many mar- uh, marriage ceremonies, a ton, a bunch. And all the language is all through the marriage ceremony that I've written about how this is a proclamation of Jesus and his church. I just, I mean, I just slather the whole ceremony with that language. But for some reason, I didn't consider the continuing aspects of marriage as the continuing proclamation of that stand that we take on that day when we stand in white as the bridegroom and the bride. I I just didn't, I just hadn't made that continual connection that it's something we've got to really critically address in the church so that we get a right proclamation of God. So marriage is critical principally not because of how it affects our lives and our happiness. Though it does affect our lives and our happiness in a a major way, it's critical not principally for that reason. It's critical principally because how it affects or mars the proclamation of the knowledge of God in the earth. That is why marriage is critical. So we're going to get into it. I think the, the lack of declaration that we've had in the church, myself, over the issue of marriage as it relates to who God is in marriage, it's caused a whole different testimony of God and a whole different uh, focus on marriage to take place in the earth. A whole different mentality than should be. The issue of sex has been completely neglected almost completely neglected by the church. There's some places, some, some pastors, leaders that have talked about sex, but most of us stay away from that issue because we've, we've, we've allowed the world to own the terms pleasure and sex. And because we've allowed the world to own it, the world has owned it and it's become, what we've, what we've ended up with is an overly sexualized society that's totally bathed in perversion rather than the church owning it, declaring who God is in sex and in pleasure. And that's reality, beloved. God made that. He made the sexual relationship as another declaration of the knowledge of himself. Now, I'm just giving you a little preview. I'm going to do a a message on the glory of sex. If you don't want your kids to hear it, it's going to be the eighth one. We're going to go out with a bang on on this series. The glory of sex is going to be the last one. It's going to be good. I mean, I am, we're going to cut it straight. I want to just, we, the church has been negligent. I've been negligent. We can't be negligent anymore over these issues. We've got to declare who God is. And in sex, we've got to declare who God is. And we're like, whoa, what do you mean? I'm telling you, God made sex. We're going to nail that. All right. So there's a lot of fantasy I'm just doing, introdu- this is all an introduction today. Today's an introduction. I want to pique your interest. Get your, get your, if you ever had a, a couple that you're afraid to invite to IHOP, this would be the time. You can invite them now because I'm just going to hit marriage. You're afraid like, oh man, who knows what's going to, we're going to, 
Lord willing, we're going to plow through the next eight weeks on marriage. It's fairly safe, mostly. But I want to jump in on this. I want to go hard after this stuff. All right, here's the, here's the reason there's fantasy in marriage. The reason there's fantasy in marriage is our key depictions of married love and romance are given to us through media outlets. Most people don't have the right comprehension of married love and romance. They don't, they don't have one that's based in reality. In other words, the 20-year-old the person doesn't draw their picture of married love and romance from their parents. They sure, surely don't draw it from the church because we don't ever talk about it. So they draw, they're going to get a picture of it from somewhere. So where do they do? They draw it from movies and novels and writings and sitcoms. And so then what happens is, because we have backed off the declaration of what married uh, love is about and what marriage is about, people have this overly romanticized concept of why get married, what marriage will be, They imagine that happily happily ever after is the point of marriage. And so they just, what they tend to do is they go with, people will go with the first infatuation that they gain because they imagine that marriage is supposed to be a lifelong experience of being infatuated. I want to tell you, marriage is never going to be a lifelong experience of being infatuated. Infatuation comes and goes. If, if being married was supposed to be about experiencing the, the, the exhilaration of infatuation, you'd have to get a new marriage every two to three years. You can say amen to that. Your spouse should not get offended. Be- because infatuation will get, you'll, it'll, it'll, it'll get your attention but it won't keep you married. Listen to me, single person. Infatuation will not keep you married. That, that's a Jane Austen book you, you read. That, that is not reality. No, that, that's, that, you watched Pride and Prejudice one too many times. That, that's not reality. I want to say it this way. Love... In the romantic sense, romantic love is still not even what keeps you married. Because there's going to be a lot of times, even the most loving, sold out Christian people, they're not going to feel very loving in marriage. You know what keeps a, a couple married? Your vows. That's it. The fact that you said you would. The fact that you said you would, that's what keeps you married. Because when there's no feelings, when you could just strangle that person, when the crucible is as hot as it gets, and it's not fun, and it's not happy, and you don't feel good, and you're not blessed, and you're not feeling very infatuated, there's a point where you just go, I said I do, and I still do. If you haven't hit that point in your marriage, you haven't been married long enough, bless you. It's okay. You will. You got a lot to look forward to. You don't stay married because of infatuation or romantic love. You stay married because of your vows. So, I was looking at this, these pictures of marriage that emphasize romantic love and and how they, they reject the values of faithfulness and selflessness. And they reject the values of meekness and giving and serving and, and perseverance. I mean, perseverance is a radically important value to have in marriage. You've got to persevere through some stuff. And I was thinking about how our pictures are so just slanted to meism. It's just me. How, how can I be happier? What, what will make me feel better? And, and marriage, and even some of, a lot of our, our marriage teaching, even in the church, is all about how do I get happier? What will bless me? And, and I just started realizing that these concepts have nothing to do with who is God. 
Meism will never, and that's, that's just humanism, carnal humanism, secular humanism. It will never declare the knowledge of God. And I, and I started looking up different authors and different things that people had written on it. And I found C.S. Lewis and it just shocked me. C.S. Lewis, we love C.S. Lewis. We love Chronicles of Narnia, mere Christianity. And we, he's one of, the, one of the brightest Christian thinkers of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis. And uh, I was blown away to find out that he married uh, a woman late in life. They only stayed married for three years. And the reason why they only stayed married for three years is because they had the marriage ceremony in a hospital because she was dying with terminal cancer. They did, the, they did the marriage ceremony in the hospital. And all so many of his contemporaries were like, he knows nothing of romance. He's just da-da-da-da-da. And he wrote some stuff and fired back, and he said, no, you know nothing of love. The reason why is because you have bought into this concept of romance and romantic love that is actually a brand new entry in the human existence. And C.S. Lewis wrote and talked about how the 1800s in the romantic era, it introduced this concept of romantic love as the key issue for marriage. But throughout human existence prior to that, it wasn't even the main point. It was a side issue totally. And he, he went on and on. He said, if, if all you do is marry for marriage love, you've completely missed the point. And he described, uh, marry for romantic love, if you missed the point, and he, and he describes the entry of romantic love as the key issue to get married for. He described that as one of three or four major shifts in the human psyche throughout all existence. I guess he would know. He got married in a hospital to a woman that was dying of terminal cancer. She died three years later. He didn't marry for romantic love. He married for a different version of love. A love that gives and serves. A love that's selfless and finds fulfillment in the blessing of another. I'll say some of these things again in subsequent weeks. But most of the time when people say, I love you, what they really mean is, I love how you make me feel. Most of the time, I love me. I love me to laugh. I love me to feel good. I love the way I feel when I'm around you. I love how I feel when I'm looking at you. I love me, 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 me. I love you. Because I love you means I want to give and serve and lay my life down for the blessing of you at the expense of myself. I want to I die to my desires for your benefit. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. <laughs> Remember that one? I'm telling you what, he didn't fall in love with us because we looked that good. Now to him we look good, but we, are, we don't have a lot of righteousness that attracts the one who is righteousness itself. You know what I'm saying? So this concept of, of, of romantic love, and I'm not saying that marriages should be devoid of romance. No, romantic love is a great uh, thing to have in marriage, but romantic love will not keep you married. We've got to get rid of a lot of this fascination that's, that's in our minds as it relates to marriage so that we can actually live married in a way that declares God and draws us closer to him and so that we can actually learn to love. We have to learn to love. Love is, it's not a feeling, it's a choice. Love is something you learn and learn and learn again, over and over and over. You learn love over and over and over in life. You're not gonna do one loving act and think that you've got love down. Love is something that will reduce you. Love, <laughs> love has got its own mind and its own demands. And it will reduce you till all you are is love. And that's the problem. When you make a journey into love, it can't ever be self-serving. A journey into love is always going to be for the blessing of another. And a journey into love will kill your selfishness. It will reduce you. And you know what marriage is? 
a journey into love. So, we always use, how y'all doing? We always use, when it comes to marriage, terms like healthier, stronger, happier, more passionate, more fulfilling, to describe what we should be seeking in marriage. And I agree we should have healthy, strong marriages. I totally want that. But as, as Gary Thomas said, what if marriage is not designed to make you happier? And what if God didn't design marriage to be easier? What if God had an idea in mind that went beyond our own happiness and our comfort and our desire to be infatuated? What if it actually went past that? What if the whole point of marriage, the principal point of marriage was to actually conform you to the image of his son? What if marriage is about making you holy? What if it's about giving you a clear picture of the knowledge of God? What if marriage is about finding happiness through holiness, through laying your life down? Rather than infatuation and flings and happily ever afters and all that stuff. What if marriage is about reducing you? If, I, if you're after inner transformation, if you want to be conformed to the image of Christ and you want God to move in your heart, you might even say this, that the more difficult that your marriage is, the better off you are. <laughs> Because just like lifting weights, the heavier the weights are, the more you're transformed, the more challenging the environment is, the more you have to lay your life down and give and serve and bless and be selfless, selfless, the, the more that those features are in place, the more you will be conformed to the image of Christ. I'm not talking about you serve and you resent it. I'm talking about you serve as a measure to know him more. It go, you know, your, the way you live in terms of your, your sacrifice that goes unnoticed to know him more. If you desire to be married as a means to your fulfillment, hear me, married and single alike, hear me. I promise you, if your mentality is I'm getting married to get fulfilled, you will not be fulfilled. Marriage is not what fulfills any person. Neither is their spouse. God and God alone is what fulfills us. God and God alone is what fulfills us. And so what ends up happening is people get in their marriage, they look at their spouse, they go, man, they're not fulfilling me. And the reason why they end up with a stinky attitude about their marriages and a stinky attitude toward their spouse a lot of times is they've got way too high of an expectation on their marriage and on their spouse. They're expecting their marriage and their spouse to be the fulfilling agent of their soul when the entire time you were supposed to find God in your marriage so that God could fulfill your soul so that you could love and serve and enter into a journey of living the cross in marriage and find fulfillment and joy through the holiness that marriage offers you. I promise you, if you're looking for fulfillment, marriage is not the answer. If you're looking for a fight, get married. A lot of times young people come to me, they'll go, yeah, we're feeling it. I think this is the one. Gotta get married. I go, have you had any fights yet? Well, one or two. No, you're not ready. <laughs> you need to have a real one. And have a real fight. And then let's talk about if you want to still marry this person. So we're so, we're just so fantasy. You know, we've just such a fantasy mentality in our minds about what marriage is and what it's supposed to be like. Marriage can be absolute delight and pleasure. But I tell you that mentality that it's this, this romantic thing where you just ride off in the sunset and you're carried on the winds of, of romantic love and infatuation, that is just, it's not truth. 
Marriage is, is designed to be a crucible to purify you. So I think, I, I was thinking of it this way. A lot of times, people in their Christianity, they imagine that what they are as a Christian is who they are when they're out in the public, when everybody sees them. But I believe the truth is, what they are as a Christian is who they are in their home. Because the family context is the, it's the, it's the best, it's the uh, perfect context designed by God to give us the ability to daily deal with our stuff and walk out love. And what you are at home in your family is the reality of your Christianity, not what you are when everybody's watching you in the public. So you can think of it this way. The public eye, that's like the practice. The family eye, that's the game. And who you are with your spouse when no one else is watching, who you are with your children, that speaks the reality of your Christianity more than anything else. So, I'm landing now. Here's the thing. We've got to decide whether we want to view marriage in a man-centered way or in a God-centered way. Do we want to see marriage from the view uh, that glorifies and magnifies God or from the view that glorifies and and blesses me as the key reason? A man-centered view, we maintain our marriages because we want it to to, uh, bless us, meet our desires, fulfill our longings. That, in a man-centered view, we're all about how does this thing make it better for me? Am I happy? Am, am I enjoying myself? I tell you, people get divorced for all the wrong reasons. They get divorced for all the wrong reasons. Not happy in your marriage is not a reason to get divorced. Not happy in your marriage is a great, that's a great opportunity to find, about, find out about Jesus, to fellowship with him, to actually lay your life down. So man-centered view is focused to enhance our earthly comforts. It's focused on, on meeting our temporal desires. But a God-centered view is about bringing glory to God and living a life that points out to a lost world that God is a God that loves them and wants reconciliation at all costs, even the sacrifice of his son. A God-centered view of our marriages is what we must have. We've got to shift living a man-centered view because that, I think, is the plague that has corrupted our marriages. When it hasn't been good for us, people find the escape hatch. What we've got to do is find out how can I live in a way in my marriage that glorifies God and draws me closer into the knowledge of him. And if marriage produces that for you, I tell you, it's the best for you. Beloved, we'll be married to him forever. Your spouse, you won't be married to forever. I guarantee you your marriage is about a proving, preparing ground for your marriage with him. I guarantee you. I want to draw your attention to a couple verses and we'll close. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Paul giving us the way he lives. Talking about the the, uh, inheritance groaning to be clothed in the glorified body. He's, he's, he's talking about what it means to live pleasing the Lord. And he says, and he summarizes the, the whole thing in verse nine. He says this, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, present from our bodies or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Because the the key motivator of my heart is, how do I please the Lord? Beloved, how do I please the Lord? That has got to be, it's got to be front and center when we approach marriage. How do I flow in love with you, even in a difficult time, even in a good time? How, Lord, do I please you in this? 
That's Paul's key. I think one of the foundational keys the way he lived his life. Last verse. Look over here at Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. I just want you to see this. Paul bookends one of his quick explanations of married life with two interesting verses. Colossians 3 verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, do it all in the name of Jesus. Wives, submit to your own husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart fearing God. Verse 23, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to man. He gives us those two verses. He gives us verse 17 and verse 23 and sandwiches the discussion of married life and family life within it. And the reason why is this. He's trying to get us to focus the way that we live in our marriages and in our families on our relationship with the Lord first, not on how it you know, ministers or, 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 or how, it, how it pleases us. That's critical, beloved. It's a massive shift. I realize, you know, to be honest with you, as I'm looking at these things, I don't like all this so much. I go, this is not going to make me happy. This is, this is, I got issues. I've got to reevaluate why I'm even married. I've got to reevaluate a bunch of different things that, that happen in, in my family. If the whole point is, I'm doing everything here to please you and to know you. Beloved, that, has, that is a major paradigm shift. It changes the purpose for why we get married. It changes the way that we live in married life. It changes the way that we view our vows and what keeps us married. But ultimately, I tell you this, if we will transition our focus in our marriages to how can I please the Lord and how will this marriage draw me into the knowledge of him more? If I can change that and make that the first point, it will fix so much in the rest of the way that we act in our marriages. Because then you will lay your life down. Then you will love selflessly. Then you will serve and bless and honor in a way that you wouldn't if it was all about you. I tell you what, in marriage, selfishness, it's at the firing line. And once you say I do, the battery of rifles is opened on selfishness. And the question is, when your selfishness comes under attack, will you stand through it and let it die or will you run and prop it up? Because it's ultimately about you and him. It's ultimately about his relationship with you and the declaration of who he is to the earth. And beloved, I tell you, I, I am excited about finding God in my marriage. In, in a way that the five points on being a better husband didn't excite me. I'm excited about living in this crucible with someone that's not like me. You know, I, I was sure she was just like me for about, you know, six months. But man, when I found out she's not like me, she's got totally a lot of different stuff. I, I've been finding that out for the last 18 years, how much she's not like me. And I thought the goal of marriage was to make her just like me. That's not the goal of marriage, man. It's not the goal of marriage. The goal of marriage is to make you just like Jesus. That's way harder. That's way harder than making her like you. 
<laughs> you thought I'd just let you off the hook. Now that will cost you. It'll be the, the most blissful payment you'll ever make, but it will cost you. It'll cost you pride. It'll cost you selfishness. It'll cost you your own desires, doing things your own way. And ultimately, it will, it will be such a blessing for you because we do everything to try to please the Lord. Why? Because we're going to stand before him one day. See, that job review that we've got coming called the judgment seat of Christ, that's a great motivator. He is going to look at me and talk to me about how I loved and served and how I handled the stewardship of my family. That's critical, beloved. It's critical. So I want a God-centered view of my marriage. That's what I'm endeavoring, endeavoring to find out is what does that mean? What does that mean to live God-centered in my marriage? God-centered. Doesn't that sound awesome? God-centered in my marriage. Yeah, amen. Good, let's stand. I've decided I'm not going to worry about it when y'all don't amen. I just, I just chalk it up to your thinking. <laughs> no, it's fine, really. I, I think I'm there. I'm totally over it, actually. Because, again, that job review really isn't going to be about whether or not you liked my preaching. I like you, but it's not going to be whether or not you like my preaching. I want to be faithful to the Lord. I feel energy on this. I feel like the Lord wants us to have marriages that glorify him, that proclaim the knowledge of God. The world can look at it and go, oh, oh, I get it. That's, what, that's the whole point why he gave us this institution in the first place, so that people would look at the thing and go, husband, wife, bridegroom, bride, oh. Good, let's pray. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Oh, I want to get real. Just want to, I just want to invite you forward. Single or married, doesn't really matter. If you'd say, I want to have a marriage that's God-centered. I want to live God-centered in my marriage. I want to do marriage in a way that glorifies the Lord first and proclaims the knowledge of him first. I want to transition from it being a a me-centered thing. But what pleases me and what, what meets my needs and my desires, I'm telling you, your spouse is not going to meet your needs. Only Jesus will. So we're going we're gonna to take a few weeks and just go into this. I'm going to have to spend a, few, a little time redefining things for us, redefining marriage, redefining love. When most of us, I know I have for a long time, I thought, I love you. I mean, really, for me, it was really about, I love how you make me feel. We, we've got to redefine that. And for, for a long time, I thought, Marriage was just about happily ever after and whatever I saw, you know, I thought it was Jerry Maguire. He had me at hello. That's what I thought it was. It's this romance that's going to carry you forever. We're going to redefine marriage. We're going to redefine that. Come here, Mary. Let's all pray. Let's just do this together. Thank you, Lord. Oh, Lord, you've given us marriage as a declaration of the knowledge of you. You've given us marriage to declare the glory of the Lord to the earth. You've given us marriage to transform us, to make us more like Jesus. Lord, we're standing before you, single and married, and we're saying we want to live God-centered in our marriage. 
living in a way that pleases the Lord primarily and firstly knowing that laying our life down blessing and serving others it's the mentality that you call us to live oh God I'm asking for grace God over these next eight weeks as we're going in this direction I pray supernatural things would happen God where bitterness and contempt have crept in I pray for forgiveness and confession of faults and humility Oh, Lord, I pray, break us down in the crucible of marriage. We live in a way that glorifies the Lord. We know if we live that way, we'll love our spouse the way you've called us to. Jesus, be glorified, really. Lord, let us see that who we are in public is the practice, and then who we are at home, that's the game. That's when it's legit. We want a God-centered marriage. Oh, and we want to comprehend the glory of this mystery. The glory of marriage. The glory of marriage. Come, Holy Spirit.